Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And in case you're wondering what on earth it means, it means the lion is sleeping, the lion, the lion. The legend says the lion isn't dead, he's just sleeping. You'll wake up someday and lead us to freedom. Hey folks, Paco here. On this episode of SupDoc, I recap the 2019 documentary, The Lion Share, currently streaming on Netflix. As someone who has worked in the music business, I can say with ease that it is brutal. From royalties and demanding record labels to artists being sued for copyright infringement, it's sometimes difficult to remember a time when these things weren't the norm. The Lion Sleeps Tonight is one of the most recognizable songs in our history. Under the original title, Mbube, written and recorded in 1939 by South African singer Solomon Linda. Through a combination of chicanery and misunderstanding, this international hit song is a complex tale of artist exploitation, though only in its circumstances make it out of the ordinary. The attempts to right this wrong are the subject of The Lion Share, the latest episode of Netflix's music documentary series, Remastered. And my guest is comedian and musician Phil Johnson, who, because of his long hair, often gets mistaken for a woman, but only by those not paying attention. That revelation kicks off a battle for self-awareness where comedy and music are the weapons of choice. It's a battle that has taken Phil to such esteemed festivals as the Edinburgh Fringe and Sundance Film Festivals, and the top eight finals of the World Series of Comedy. And now, here's my talk with Phil. Okay, so, the lion's share. Fuck, dude. What a doc. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. Yeah. We might as well just start. I wasn't thinking okay. we were starting, but we might as well just start. It's, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. And it's... So, Phil. Phil Johnson's here. I'm here. Um, known Phil for a long time. Musician, comedian, funny fucking guy. <laughs> Lots of respect for this man, because he. you've been doing it for a 15 long... 15 years. 15 in years. In comedy, yeah. In comedy. You've toured. You play everywhere. You're one of the few guys I ever knew that like knew how to leave... Like the Bay Area and go do comedy. I, I had to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Of course, it makes sense. But did you always have a car? Oh yeah, yeah. I've had a car since I was seventeen, pretty regular. I mean, I live in the suburbs, so right. you don't get to you know walk everywhere. And uh, did so, you yeah. buy a house? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, we bought a house in '05. Oh wow. Yeah, right at the top of the bubble. So it was good planning. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so you hit me up uh, on Facebook and you're like, hey, have you seen this documentary? Which yeah. is one of my favorite things instead of like me, um, like looking for ads and stuff. Like sure. I love when friends who know that I do a documentary podcast be like, hey, have you seen this? Right. Because that's usually like, oh, okay. this Because uh -huh. if someone takes the time, yeah. you know it's going to be good. Yeah. And then I watched it and I was like, what the fuck is happening? Right. In this documentary. And then I watched it again uh -huh. with even more stuff I had missed the first time. Yeah. With even more like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, this is insane. What yeah. an insane story. Yeah. I watched it again yesterday, too, just to kind of refresh because it's been a month or so. And it, it had been sitting in my Netflix list forever. And I, and I was like, I was going on a flight and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this on this flight. It's perfect length. And yeah, I'm just I'm sitting on this plane just like with my mouth dropped to my tray uh, watching this thing, because uh, I mean, that's I've always found that to be such a weird, unique, anomalous song. 
you know, uh, it's about it's about Lion Sleeps Tonight, sort of. Kind of. Kind of. Well, yeah. later on. Later on. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it was it was one of those songs where I mean, I can remember listening to it sitting in the backseat of my parents station wagon. They're listening to the oldies station. Right. And it's on between, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. And then all of a sudden, we move it. We move <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Even as a kid, I'm like, this is so weird for this time period. For the song to exist, that it's always been a fascinating song for me to find out how the heck did that come about? Because, I mean, it's obviously like a novelty song. Um, I always put it in the same category as like Alley-Oop or, you know, something like that where it's just this weird song that came out of nowhere and it was a one-hit wonder and you never heard from the tokens again. Right, thank God. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) It was so great to see the singer from the tokens in the the documentary. I I was like, ah, that's the guy. Oh, man, you could be uglier back then and be a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) God bless the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But yeah, I mean, do you remember the first time you heard the song? Oh, of course. Yeah? Yeah, I remember being a kid and having it on a 45. Really? And uh, Harry Nielsen's put a lime in the coconut, okay. which I thought right. were kind of the same sure. people singing the same song. I thought it yeah, was yeah. the same group. Uh-huh. I remember that being like, it's the same person. It's right. the same song, basically. Yeah. You know, but, and then, um, uh, which the witch doctor. Oh one. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> those songs, like those were all kind of my childhood songs. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I was just, I mean, cause you're a music guy. Yeah. And it was always like, I was like in the, as the more I got into music, the more I would go back to that song and go, how does this even make sense in, was it 1965, I think, was the, mm-hmm. the Tokens version? Yeah. And I just, how do, where does that even come from? And so as soon as I popped on this documentary, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. Did you know that it was about, did you know the lion's share was about this song before you started watching it? Or did you be like, okay, I, I'm not sure what's going on? I had read this just the synopsis and it said, oh, it's about the, the lion sleeps tonight. And I was like, perfect. I mean, yeah. you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I wasn't into the idea enough to watch it immediately, but I was like, I want to watch this at some point and find out what's going on right. with this. And that's, you know, that's why it sat there for so long. Well, it doesn't, the synopsis doesn't really do, do a great job of telling you exactly what's happening. No, in this no, it doesn't. Like yeah. I would have completely skipped over this song uh-huh. thinking that it was like, oh, it's a guy that like found the original manuscript or whatever, yeah. or, or uh, like songbook or something. Uh-huh. Like, not that it gets to the depth of, and this is what I wrote earlier. It, it's about, so if, for those who are interested in heritage, songwriting, royalties, legalities, lawyers, money, family, and taking on Disney, yes, <laughs> you will love the lion's share because it's like, oh, fuck, this, this documentary is one of those classic ones that literally has everything yeah. in it. And there's so many topics and themes that run through yes. this, you know? I hadn't mentioned even Disney in the synopsis. I'm a Disney nerd. I oh, would have been like, that. oh, now I have to watch it right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, and so it what it's so weird because nobody did anything illegal in the whole story. Let me process that for a second because I didn't think about that. Nobody did anything illegal. So Disney did not because Disney only was going based on the oh, the right. rights that they knew. So about. they didn't know, right? Because oh. at that point, nobody knew. They didn't know. It, they were going on, you know, Pete Seeger. Uh, and the tokens and, you know, I mean, they might, they were probably paying George Weiss, the songwriter guy, because he did own all the rights to the song at that point. So they were probably paying out George Weiss, but right. they had no idea who, who, um, uh, um, the, the songwriter was, oh, I'm spacing on his name now. 
Solomon Linda. Oh yeah, right, right, right. So I they see. had no idea who Solomon Linda was. No, okay, I, that's an interesting point. I never thought. Let, let me. Okay, but Paul Campbell. So some. So there's the fake arranger, right? Guy. Yeah. The the, the uh, Alan Smithy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> the music version of Alan Smithy. <laughs> the yeah. music version of Alan Smithy, but for good songs, I guess. That <laughs> that would pay out. Which. So is that not illegal? No, not really, because okay. if it's a so if I do if it's a real public domain piece of music and I do a version of it, mm. then I can claim a copyright as a ranger. Interesting. And then it's basically like that that version and that recording. So if I you know if I go do a, a public domain song, I can claim a ranger rights and I can compl- I can claim sound recording rights right. as a copyright, and then I own that, and then I can get a piece of the action anytime somebody does something based on my version. Got it. And so that's what they were doing. I see. Okay, so now um, for those people who are tuning in and have not seen the lion share, we've completely confused them <laughs> because this this doc has everything, and, we, and this is, does not have to be chronological. But why, yeah. why don't you catch, kind of, give people the synopsis of what this doc is from like start to finish? Okay, so there's there's uh, the song "The Lion Sleeps Tonight," which oh we move it, we move it, right? Turns out none of those words are real. <laughs> Um, <laughs> right, right. Like, like not even the real words of the song or real words at all. Right. Uh, and so it, they track the beginning of the song. The, the, the main character or the main player in the thing is uh, Rian Milan, who is a, 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 a rock journalist, wrote for Rolling Stone, all this kind of stuff. And he ethnomusicologist. is no musicologist, ethno musicologist. Also, his dad was responsible for apartheid, which they open with that. And you're like, whoa, what? this what? is going way deep, way fast. Right. And so he tracks back the <laughs> origins of this song to Solomon Linda, and it's, it's a song called Mbube uh, from South Africa, and uh, and it, it's 1939, right. I think, was when that came out, and that's that one song inspired a whole genre of music in South Africa, which they even called Mbube, and then you know it came through some other which means names, lion, in which Zulu. means lion, yeah. And so the, there's this weird thread of lion going through it, even though it has nothing to do with sleeping. You know, and right. uh, and so they they uh, he go, he tracks it back. He finds out that Solomon Linda really never got any money for this song because he accidentally signed his rights away to the publishing company in South Africa, which the music then ended up in the U.S. Um, and it gets um, in front of Alan Lomax and uh, who is a, a South African ethnomusicologist. No, well, no, no. Alan He's Lomax the, is uh, right. mostly an American ethnomusicologist. Right. He's yeah. the American one. Right. right. And uh, who was who was the guy that um, did, that uh, did the oh Pete Seeger right so Pete Seeger does a version of it that becomes a hit the the tokens do it it a a parade of white people destroy this song um, which is really an underlying theme of the whole film is that man white people do some messed up stuff right and yes. <laughs> and it's underlining theme to music in general in general yes stealing from black artists white people making money off the hard work of black artists exactly and talent yeah yes. exactly and so Rian Milan tracks back this thing and they end up hiring lawyers to try and you know bring this song back to South Africa it turns out it's a really important song to South South Africa in general and uh, they end up suing Disney to not so much for the money. The money was there, but more to have a high-profile case that would then lock the song back into South Africa. Because Disney was using it for The Lion King. For The Lion King. For the huge, mega-animated hit, yeah. Lion King. And the Broadway show. And then the Broadway show. Yeah. Right, yes. So, and then, right, we open on Ryan Milan, who kind of looks like 
a very he's I mean the opening his opening remarks is like I drink a lot, I smoke cigarettes, I write. Yeah. You know, like he's the most transparent person I've ever seen in a documentary. Holy crap. Yeah. yeah. Can I just submit this, Phil, how happy I was that this music documentary didn't have the typical talking heads of mm. like Sting, Bono, sure, you know, like those guys, right. you know, like we'd see Bruce Springsteen be like, I always love Solomon Linda. Right. <laughs> yeah. you know, like I had a signed copy of Right. Yeah, yeah. The only one they had was the guy that leads Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Oh, right. Right. Which is who Which you should have. Fits. Yeah, yes. exactly. Because he's from South Africa. Right. Right. I was just, I'm so sick of music documentaries uh -huh. that just like march out the usual suspects sure. and it's usually bono for some reason right <laughs> the man has too much time on his hands he's in all of them yeah you know um but i was just because it does not have it's a very it has a very low budget feel yes this documentary yeah. which uh -huh. makes it even i think an even more palatable watch yeah it's not flashy it's not shiny it doesn't have animation and graphs right. and stuff right you know yeah it's a very low budget very well paced as far as filmmaking mm -hmm. um and very there there were there were times especially in my the first watch where i was kind of confused about what was going on uh -huh. there were moments when i was just like i don't understand I didn't understand a lot of the like um, legality stuff. They mm. didn't. They, I don't think they did. For me, I didn't think they did a great job of ex really explaining what was happening. And also, I was confused of like the time period. Like, where are okay. we right now? Yeah, it goes back and forth. It does so, flip around. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what year uh -huh. are we in? And I still not even sure until the end when they go like March 2018. You're like, right. okay, finally. Yeah, I have I think some a, idea. A lot of it was happening. Okay, well, if they're suing Disney around Lion King and the Broadway show was already happening, then we're talking at least late 90s. Well, and he wrote the piece for Rolling Stone in 2000. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah right. And and he called out Disney yes. then. Okay. And then the 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 Broadway thing came out. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it's a little it is a little hard to follow time-wise. Um the legality stuff, I don't know, I guess I've played around with copyright and trademark and stuff so well, much you, for my you've own stuff written songs and, yeah, yeah that i kind of understood i thought it was fascinating the way they finally dug up that old uk law from charles dickens what the fuck that applied and i don't I, what i didn't understand is how you apply a uk law to a south african law unless there was some sort of colonial connection there or something like that but that's all i could think but yeah. that's dutch right but the, I guess, oh that would be dutch yeah but the british fucking colonized everybody, everything yeah so. they're probably there at some point they're like all oh, right yeah, yeah. We got this <laughs> probably i didn't understand that's the stuff i was i'm kind of talking about too is like i didn't yeah. quite understand how they could do that unless it was like universe a universal law or something right i didn't know how they could connect it i understood the use of the law well, that was funny because at the end when the lawyers talk about well there's only a few lawyers in the world who would you know be able to navigate this case and i was like oh, i get it how you did it right because the law essentially extends the copyright 25 years additional past the life of the songwriter so that the heirs can make some money off of it and uh and that totally makes sense ironically it's completely the same idea as disney's always pushing on our copyright laws here um where they're always trying to extend copyright uh-huh um which as a copyright owner i'm okay with yeah um but uh, you know here they always call it oh it's a mickey mouse law it's a mickey mouse copyright law you know and uh but it's so they it sort of got bitten by their own <laughs> right got, got bitten by their own legal wasted by legal their own threat. petard yeah exactly yeah whatever that saying is right yeah yeah and uh so that yeah they got hit with their same thought process which i thought was funny but 
it was, um, yeah, so some of that stuff could be, if you're not familiar with copyright law and things like that, is can be a little bit hard to navigate in the film, but um, I, I got it. I didn't even think about it that much. Yeah, I yeah, it kind of confused me a little bit, but like... Uh, the, the documentary is pretty awesome because you don't, for one, you don't see that kind of coming. I certainly didn't see right. that part. Yeah. Like, like if you're going to bracket it, break, break it up in act one, act two, act three, like in act one, we learn a lot about the song itself. Mm -hmm. They show literally 12 people, different groups and things right. of singing the song over the years. Some of them so bad. Oh yeah. <laughs> so bad. So bad. Um, and I even did some research. Uh, I found a Brian Eno version. Oh my God, really? Yeah. It's I'm like, a lion. <laughs> but it, it has the Brian Eno, like, okay, yeah. But it has the like sweet melody. Uh -huh. He didn't fuck with the song at all. He yeah. just did some weird rhythm shit. You know, okay. There. And then I think it's the vinyls. Do you remember that? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're like, I think just a acapella group. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They did a pretty hit, but they, so there's um, the tokens and sync. Uh, yeah. Henry Salvador. Uh, they showed the friends uh, singing. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And then, like, so it's pretty interesting to hear, like, the, the, the entomology of, like, the Wimoe from Umbabwa. Uh -huh. Umbabi, Umbabwe? Umbube. Umbube. Thank Umbube. You. And in the original song, it's Oya Umbube. Which is like, uh, I am a lion or something? Uh, yeah, I am a lion or you are a lion or something like that. Somebody's where, a lion. Yeah, where the daughters were like, no, it was a song about him like building himself up, where the, the backs around singers are going, you're a lion, you're a lion, yeah, I'm a lion. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was a bragging song right. of sorts that they were writing. I don't know if they were writing it in the studio. I know he riffed the melody. Right, that's they be basically improved. Yeah, it was melody. like the second of three takes or something like yeah. that. The the uh, the archivist was saying in there, you know, where I mean, and when you listen to that melody, it's funny because when you you hear a melody like that and you hear the original one and you're like, oh, that's not that catchy, but it got refined and refined and refined and refined as it was done over and over and over right. again until you get, you know, the one in the tokens version, which is kind of the one that everybody thinks about. Yeah, and we don't away, you know. And that's so catchy. And you hear the first one, you're like, oh, I can hear the seed yes. of that catchiness in there. Yeah. You know? Um, which kind of, it makes me think about, you know, the song Torn by, well, the Natalie and Bruglia version is oh, the right. one that everybody knows. Yeah. Right. So that song was originally done by a group named Edna Swap, um, who did it on every album they put out. Like, I have six different versions of Edna Swap doing Torn. And then Natalie and Bruglia does it. And it's huge. Just blows Just up. Just blows up. Yeah. Right. And what they did in the Natalie and Bruglia version is they took this little melody that was buried in the mix at the end of the Edna Swap version and they popped it out front. Oh. And it was it turned out to be a super catchy melody. The hook. That became the melodic hook around the vocals. And Edna Swap never pulled that melody out. It was just kind of buried in the mix in the coda of the song, you know? Yeah. And so it's kind of that same thing where I listen back and I go, oh, there's that melody. They just popped it out and made it a more prominent part of the uh, the mix. Interesting, you know. And so it was that kind of thing where you hear that sort of prototypical med uh, melody at the in that original recording, huh? And then it pops out later, and you're like, oh, that's the part, you know? Right. That's really. It's always interesting. I remember when I found out like Led Zeppelin, like most of their songs are covers, right? In the early stages, certainly. You yeah. know, like they stole from like um, like like. Um, 
old blues singers, yeah. you know, black African American blues singers. Yep. But I don't, I don't think got any money from some of that stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it depends on who it is with those British bands. Yeah. I don't know the Led Zeppelin background. Like this, they, uh, all those black artists were very thankful of the Stones. The Stones were very supportive of them. Yes, because they would take them out on the road, have them open. You know, they were very upfront about, no, this isn't our song. This is a Howlin' Wolf song or whatever right, it is, right, right. you know. Um, Zeppelin, I don't think, was quite as truthful. Like when the levee breaks, I think is like a great Mama Thornton song. I or, think so, You yeah. know, like it's yeah. so, like, I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> right. Know, like, I really want to like these guys, but yeah. Jesus Christ. Can you at least credit them? Right. You know, like what's the, like they're, I mean, they're multi, 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 multi-millionaires. Sure. Break off a couple mil right. for some of these guys. You know, it's like, what's the, pro I don't get, I don't, I truly do not get that mentality. Yeah, I don't either. Of just being like, yeah. fuck you. Right. We're going to take this. We're rock stars mm -hmm. and who cares about, like, it doesn't make, I do, I feel like I watched a documentary where the Stones paid like Sun Studios operating costs for a year or something like that. Oh, really? That. Oh, yeah, okay. Like one of those Southern classic studios was going under and the Stones just paid their right. operating costs. Right. I like, think I do know that story. Yeah. I think I read about it in a Sun book. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of difficult for me to think of a song that has covered greater distance in both time and space. It became the most famous melody ever to emerge from Africa and also probably the most lucrative, but not if you were a poor black person in Johannesburg. Solomon Linda was the father of the genre. The famous melody mutated into The Lion Sleeps Tonight that went on to earn $16 million, almost none of which came back to him after he died to his descendants in South Africa. One of the largest exploiters of the song was, in fact, Disney. Copyright infringement took place. Damages were incurred. From there, it was like throwing a match into a lake of gasoline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I want to know more about like your musical background. Like when did you start? Did you start on guitar? Or? No, I was a flautist originally. Um, <laughs> nice. uh, so cut to fourth grade. Yeah. Uh, there's smash cut, smash cut to fourth grade. There's uh, music lessons happening at school. My mom goes, uh, she goes, do you want to play music? And I was like, yeah, I don't know, I guess. And uh, she goes, well, girls like musicians. And I was like, cool, sign me up. Right. There you go. Fourth grade. I was ready yeah. to go. And she goes, what do you want to play? And I said, I don't know. They were offering, I think, clarinet and flute and maybe trumpet or something like that. She goes, well, look, if you play the flute, you'll always be the only boy in the section. And I was like, cool, sign me up. Uh, your mom. She knew, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She, was, she was pimping you out, she, man. Yeah, she, That's awesome. She, she, she knew where my, my brain was yeah. even in fourth grade. And, uh, and it was true. I was always the only boy in, right. the, in the flute section all the way through college. And so I played, uh, I played a ton of flute, uh, orchestras, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we did Wagner at the Palace of Fine Arts here in San Francisco. Well. Fantastic, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and it was great. So I had years of that. Um, I picked up the piano, I think, when I was 12, uh, guitar when I was 16, uh, and then just, you know, went from there. I was always a hobby musician until, uh, you know, I sort of got in the, the heavy metal world as a teenager, and I was like, I think I want to do this, mm -hmm. you know? And that's when it really kind of took off. I never started a band till college. Okay. And that then I went from there, and then uh, eventually 
started performing solo and that kind of morphed into comedy. Right, right. You know? Okay. It was it was all it was, I just wanted to be the guitar player in a rock band. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> so how does how do you go from like a four piece, five piece metal rock band to solo to comedy? Well, it was I had split off. I mean, we were doing like my band Roadside Attraction was doing like sort of funky rock stuff. Um, you know, we a little bit of Red Hot Chili Peppers mixed in a little classic rock, that kind of thing. And uh, I had split off with the guys that I was working with in my band. And I tried to find a singer, worked with a couple different singers, and it was just me and them for a while, and I was just having trouble getting it going. The whole time, I'm just demoing out tracks myself, just getting stuff out of my head. And I wrote a couple of funny songs that were in there, and I was like, nah, these will be B-sides or something like that, and uh, just throw away kind of tracks. Yeah. And uh, eventually, I got talked into being a singer because everybody was like, look, we've heard your demos. They're good enough. Just be a singer. And I was like, I don't want to be a singer. They're like, just be a singer. I was like, all right, I'll be a singer. And... um did not want to do that. It was, I had never really, I don't, I'm not a trained singer. I'm trained in lots of other things. I got a degree in jazz guitar. I am not a trained singer. Um, and so it was literally just going to my studio and singing and playing guitar for six hours a day. Oh, wow. Before going in to spend 10,000 bucks recording an album. Right. Um, and so that's, that's the way I became a singer. But I had written these couple of goofy songs and I was at a music convention in Las Vegas with that my mentor, Tim Sweeney, was putting on. And we're sitting around the pool, the hotel. We actually got kicked out of four or five different places around the hotel because we were being too loud. Um, <laughs> and we were just trading songs, all these musicians that were there. You know, oh, I got a song. I got a song. We're just jamming. And I played a song for the group called Whale Blubber, uh, which is a love song um, based on a line from the Jim Carrey film, Me, Myself, and Irene, uh, where they're sitting by the lake and they're talking about, he goes, oh, if I moved to Alaska, would you go with me? And, 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 and he goes, yes, but would you eat whale blubber for me? And uh, my girlfriend and I were like, that's a song. And uh, so that became the hook of the song. Would you eat whale blubber for me? Nice. And uh, and so I wrote that and I had a couple other like funny songs and I was going to beside them. But this group that I would play it for at this music conference was like, no, 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 we can't get those stupid songs out of our head. Like the next morning, everybody was like, we're still singing the whale blubber song. And I was like, nah, garbage songs, B-sides. And they're like, no, seriously, you might pursue that. And then my mentor got wind of it. And he was like, I think this is a good idea for you to do. And I was like, but I got a band. I finally got the band back together. They're perfect. I love all these guys. They're great. And uh, I said, I'll start doing half solo gigs and half band gigs. And he's like, great. In three months, you'll be doing all solo gigs. Right. <laughs> and so I started doing the coffee shop scene playing, you know, playing my straight songs, throwing in a couple goofy songs, started talking in between. Um, I had a really bad habit of forgetting lyrics and I would make a joke of it when I forgot the lyrics to the point where everybody expected me to forget the lyrics. Like they, it was part of the show. Oh, um, and really, yeah. And really it was me just forgetting, forgetting the lyrics, yeah. you know? And, um, so then I got invited to play. Do you remember the hyena theater here in San Francisco? Yes, okay. I do. They were doing a comedy music night. And my friend Groovy Judy called me and said, hey, they're doing a comedy music night. You might see if you can get on the bill. And uh, Judy still plays around here, too. She's great. And uh, so I got on that. That was my first, like, legit comedy gig. I still have a recording of it. It's painful to listen to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They <laughs> and, all are. And so the MC that night was Lynn Ruth Miller. Oh, Wow. And she was like, when hey. she was like 60. Yeah, right. Yeah. She was only 104 at the time. Right, right. And uh, she goes, I need a guitar player for my act. Do you want to come play guitar for me? And I was like, yeah, OK. Oh, I was wow. open to doing anything sure. you know, at that point. I was yeah. just I was in a real just floating down the stream kind of phase. Yeah. And I was like, OK, great. I'll go play guitar with her. And we were doing this thing where I'd play 
uh, anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols, and she would throw lingerie at the audience, bras nice. and things like that. And it was yeah. very funny. It was fun. And um, and so she started taking me around to places like Ron's Farmhouse, like we were talking about a little while ago. And uh, and and she would go, hey, you know, he's got some funny songs. Why don't you give him a set? She like really pushed people to throw me on stage. And they're like, can you do seven minutes? And I was like, yeah, I did like four hours with my band last weekend. I can do seven minutes. Yeah. And then you find out how long seven minutes it's a is. a long time. You know, and so I had, I lived on three songs for the first two years, I think. Right. Just playing these couple of three songs I had. Yeah. Really funny. And then uh, caught a lot of all the guitar comic flack from the traditionalists. And I was like, hate it. Yeah. And I was like, I'll learn how to, do, I'll, I'm going to learn how to do this. It looks like I'm doing this. I'm going to learn how to do this. And yeah. I just started working on the stand-up portion of the show. And oh, everything. cool. And yeah, so it was just, to me, it was all the same thing. Like I was going to open mics and setting up a merch table because I already had stuff to sell. You know, I already had CDs and whatever. And yeah. Everybody's like, who's this dude? Yeah. You know? And uh, so to me, it was just another place to play and kind of do the same thing that I was already doing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Who were, did you have like uh, people that you looked up to, like, you know, music comics that you could listen to and not really. or were they just stand were they were you were you like a stand-up fan or is it just like one of those natural progressions no i was i was totally a stand-up fan since i was a kid you know i could i could recite you know robin williams live at the met back to front yeah and things like that and but i never thought i'd be doing it right you know that never even entered my brain at all i was a weird al fan but i never thought it you know right. i still don't do parody because weird al does it better than i'm gonna ever can do it you yeah know? so I, I still don't do parody stuff that's why i do the original stuff right and so i i was a fan um like i didn't know stephen lynch until after i started doing it okay yeah. and people would go oh you're kind of like stephen lynch right. and and uh and then i was like i don't know who the stephen lynch guy is right and then i listens and i was like oh this is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is great stephen talks about i'm good friends with stephen lynch for those People are listening, and he talks. He's talked to me about the comic versus musician comic yeah. thing, uh -huh. you know, and how he had to always kind of fight through. Because in his mind, he's more of a musician that just kind of writes funny songs. Sure, yeah. He's not really in his mind a comedian, right? First, and that's why he's never done clubs. He only right. does theaters because yeah. he's like, I'm not a comic. Uh -huh. I'm a musician that writes silly songs, right? You know, so he kind of kind of went through the same thing, and I think Bo Burnham has helped. Mm -hmm. A lot to sure. like, kind of fuse that into people's brains that you can do right. both. I mean, yeah. I've never understood. I mean, outside of maybe prop comics, but like people <laughs> who do something else on stage, it's yeah. like it's it's fun. Yeah, it's fun to watch. If you've got another skill, use it. I, absolutely, you know? and that's what I remember. I think Will Durst told me once. Someone when I first started, because I used to play guitar. When I first started, I was I went by the name Free Dirt. That was my stage okay. name. And I would ask people suggestions uh -huh. and I would write I'd riff off those suggestions and just improvise a song. That okay. was my thing when uh -huh. I first started. And I put it down. I did a show with Will Durst once doing that and he's like, That was awesome. He's, I'm like, Yeah, I, I'm just gonna stop. I'm gonna just do stand up. Uh -huh. And he was like, No, you should any anything you do, you should do it on stage. Sure. If you yeah. whistle, if you tap dance, right, you know. Yeah. Throw it in your act, man. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. 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 I always like, you know, I always like, I keep going, I want to learn like a magic trick. Just one mm. that I could throw in the act somewhere that would be cool. And almost just as a throwaway, like not even acknowledge that I just did a magic trick. Right. And, you know, and just have people yeah. go, 
Wait, did that just happen? Well, what, you know? yeah. Well, and then, I mean, ask Amazing Jonathan if it didn't work out for him. Exactly. You know, yeah. like the guy's living in a giant mansion in Las Vegas. Right, yes. High off his mind on meth, but right. that's beside <laughs> the point. Have you seen that documentary? I did. I just watched it last week. Yeah, oh, really good. Awesome. Yeah, Steve Byrne did a great job on that. He did. Did you yeah. see the, the Counterpoint one? No. The, there's a second Amazing Jonathan documentary on Hulu. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so when St- Steve Byrne's making his... yeah. Uh, um, Jonathan hired a second documentary film crew to make really? it. Really? And that one's on Hulu. And oh, you I'll have to watch that. Definitely watch that one. Oh, Because it's the other side of okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Steve Burns is more of like a, almost a love letter sure. to Amazing Jonathan. The other one, not so much. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. It's like the that. Fire Festival docu- oh, yeah, sure. competing documentary. Right. You know, it kind of does the same thing. Yeah. So... So, yeah, so we have like a classic, The Lion's Share, this documentary on Netflix, is a very classic tale that's told, been told a lot, basically, about, you know, impoverished African-American, well, not African-American at this point, but yeah, let's just African. say bl- African, yeah. actually, <laughs> yeah. just African, like, talented person that, that puts something out and then gets, makes, someone asks them to sign a contract, which is basically signs all their rights away right unbeknownst to them that was that was the point right there where you go okay not illegal but definitely sketchy Sketchy. Uh, definitely unethical well and then you find so then we part we haven't really talked about yet is his three daughters that we we see they're they're talking heads in this documentary and one of them's like he couldn't read he couldn't write right so and and then they show the contract the and it's like a nice cursive uh-huh. in curse. I'm like, it's in cursive for right. Christ's sakes. For a guy who can't write, he's like, let me just write this in cursive. Right. You yeah. know, it would have either been print, straight print, or an X. Well, yeah. You know? Well, and she says like they used to write an X or like a thumbprint. Right. They used to put like a thumbprint down uh-huh. instead, which yeah. is like so smart. Right. You know, like that is <laughs> that's trackable. That's very trackable. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and we find out from these these uh, daughters like that he died super poor. Mm-hmm. You know, like when he died, they couldn't afford to put a tombstone. Yeah, uh, on his grave, like where he was buried, and that um, he had no idea that you could make money from just singing a song. Right, there was no he did not understand that, and he did not know that the, the song that he had made had gone on to make lots of people very wealthy. Yeah. And then by an, another, there's a lot of surprises in this doc. Another big surprise is that he worked for that record company. Oh, yeah, as a he was packing records. He was packing yeah. records for the for that record. They, they gave him a job. Right. Which I was like, God, that is just so, is that evil? I can't, like, what is, <laughs> I couldn't really figure that one out. I'm uh-huh. like, were they trying to keep him close, you know? Have you seen uh, Searching for Sugar Man? Not yet, no. That documentary? Yeah. You should watch that documentary because it's very similar in tone. Uh-huh. It's about South Africa uh-huh. and about music and stuff. It's a very great documentary. Nice. Um, yeah, it's definitely one you should check out. Well, I mean, the funny thing about, you know, I mean, getting an artist, getting a songwriter to sign away their rights is that is that is not just a black artist thing. That is an every artist thing. That is, I mean, there's so many stories of record labels just shafting the artist because the artist doesn't know enough about what's going on. Never. Never does. They never do. Yeah. I mean, uh, famously, uh, Billy Joel mm-hmm. had, to, had to make a couple fortunes in his life. Sure. Because he lost a couple early yeah. on. Like yeah. the, the very first one, I think, 
uh, the, his manager took everything, mm-hmm. right? and he didn't own any of the rights to his own music, right. and lost millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and then had to come back with some other hits. Yeah, you know, like oh yeah, can you imagine being that talented? We were like, fuck, okay, I got to write some more hits. Right. You know, I guess I got to pay my rent. Here comes some hits. Here comes some hits. Yeah, well, I mean, I remember hearing stories about like Blink-182, like playing for sold out arenas and not being able to buy groceries in between road dates. You That's know, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Not not sure how they're going to get to their next arena show. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I worked for a couple labels. When I first moved to San Francisco, I was in the music business uh-huh. and I worked for two record labels and it is a crappy business. It is. People do not yeah. quite, if you don't have a lawyer with you to mm-hmm. look over those contracts, they're built to shaft you. I mean, it's literally the mob, it's like a mob thing where they're like, right. we will loan you. This is a loan. Yep. This, we're fronting you this money. Mm-hmm. It's a loan. And if your first album or second album doesn't do well, then you're going to have to create more albums to yep. pay us back at some point. Yeah. So, like, I, I remember reading once that most bands have to have five albums to break even. Sure. Which yeah. is crazy. There were times when I could have had a major label deal. Oh, wow. Um, and I was working with my mentor who I mentioned earlier, Tim Sweeney. And he came from, he was a guy that came from the major label side of things. He was a, he was a fix-it guy at Mercury Records for bands that weren't selling. Oh. So he would learn all about that stuff and then come to us indie artists and go, okay, here's what you need to do to avoid being that band that I got to go fix at Mercury Records. And uh, so there were times where it's like, okay, Tim, I've got you know people I'm talking to and things like that. And he'd be like, okay, you could sign a deal like this and here's what's going to happen. Or you can put this record out yourself and make way more money. So what was some, like, if you can impart on some valuable advice right now to people who are listening, they're like, what is that advice? Well, I mean, now it's more commonplace. Now okay. it's, you know, put the record out yourself. Okay. All the distribution is out there. I mean, right. when I was learning that stuff, it was the late 90s, mm-hmm. you know, and it was not, I mean, CD Baby was so new that... Has it been around that long? It has, yeah. Oh, so wow. Derek Sivers, who started CD Baby... Um, who is now sort of this weird mystical guru who lives in New Zealand, I think. Of course. Um, yeah, and uh, he's Derek is the greatest guy. Uh, he would he started CD Baby just as a site to sell his friends CDs online. He figured out how to you know hack together enough code to sell some CDs online. Right. When e-commerce was a new thing, brand new. Yeah. So that started to go, and so he did this national tour where he would go around and gather the local musicians and go, okay, here's this thing we're doing where we can sell your CDs online. And he would go around city to city educating us all about this. He came here to San Francisco and gathered a bunch of us around. And and, and uh, he was the greatest guy. Like to this day, if I walked up to Derek Sivers, he would go, oh, hey, Phil. And I haven't seen him in 20 years probably. Right. But he has this magnetic, this just photographic memory for people um, where – he would like, oh, you were wearing that same shirt last time I saw you 10 years ago. You know, I mean, yeah. and I would go, oh, I've been wearing this shirt for 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, but he's like one of those people where you're just like, how does he do that? Yeah. You know, he met thousands of people. And uh, so now the site's owned by disc, disc makers, I guess. Oh, okay. But he started it, and, and that was the beginning of learning how to do that self-release kind of thing, which wasn't a thing, really. You had to have some sort of label. But now distribution is so easy. You know, you can put a, a record out, you can put a single out, and have it on 
every Spotify, yeah. every streaming site in two weeks. Yeah. And it's, it's super easy. I put out my comedy album on through CD Baby. Yeah. And they do the digital distribution right. thing. And the, yeah, it was on it was on things I'd been like, oh, I don't what is this? Right. What is this yeah. thing that it is <laughs> some, on? Some weird Korean music streaming <laughs> yeah. site. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like my songs are now full of viruses and <laughs> Trojans and horses and whatever. <laughs> just like, whoa, what is this site? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very I just got my um digital distribution check uh, from okay. C- from CD Baby like two weeks ago. I put it on Facebook because uh-huh. I was like, look at the money. <laughs> uh, it's all like Roll .01 from right. like <laughs> all these weird sites and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I didn't realize CD Baby was around that long. I remember when I worked, I worked at Ubiquity Records, okay. the first record company I worked uh-huh. at here, and it was 1999. Yeah. I remember two distinct things. Is The first is we got a one-time CD burner. Okay. So it was one to one. Uh-huh. You put the CD in and you put the, then there was a second dev- second console uh-huh. for the burner. Okay. And it took just as long as the CD to burn it. <laughs> so it was, it was a oh one, my God. it was a one time and it was like $600. Yep. And the, the boss at Ubiquity was like, nobody touched this. Uh-huh. Nobody use it for anything. Except uh-huh. for like, we're making, co- you know, copies to send a press. And stuff. Right. But it took, and if it was an hour long CD, it took an hour to burn it. Oh that was God. the first thing. And the second one, I remember we had a huge meeting about whether or not we should sell stuff online. Because mm. he was just like, it's a scam. It doesn't <laughs> work. Nobody buys things on. I'm, I yeah. still remember this meeting because we were just like, should we take this risk sure. and put a shopping cart you yeah. know, on the website? Because uh-huh. like, well, who does that? Right. You know? that weird it's so weird to think of it 20 years ago yeah yeah like and and then it's black friday basically we're recording this black friday (laughs) weekend (laughs) we're like nobody went to a physical location this weekend not at all no no i was christmas shopping on amazon this morning hell yeah Yeah. dude me too (laughs) got some new balance in the mail yeah (laughs) that's just so weird dude like like you've been in both comedy and music for a very interesting period of time oh yeah you know from the late 90s to the late 2010s there's been such a huge change oh yeah and constantly feeling just slightly behind the curve at all times always of course you get just like okay i just figured out how to do this nobody uses that (laughs) (laughs) you still use that yeah it's like there's always it moves so fast now where you're just like oh okay now what now what i got oh tiktok all right i gotta figure out tiktok you know jesus yeah (laughs) yeah i can't even yeah i don't even I can't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> I, I felt like when I finally figured out like Twitter and my, I remember MySpace when I uh-huh. finally was like, oh, I've got like, I don't remember how many friends or whatever, whatever the MySpace thing was, right. you know. And then I remember, you know, Facebook came around. I'm like, fuck, you know, I got to figure out Vine. Like I've just right. stopped. I'm like, I can't just keep going with that stuff. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I hope this doesn't sound funny, but I really believe that I am a vessel through which the good Lord sends thoughts, impulses, creations through 
It comes through me, not from me, through me. And uh, I, I give credit for everything that I write to something or someone else and not me. All right, so back to the lion's share. So act one is basically we learn about the song. We learn about all the people that did it. We learned that it was a big song in South Africa that, like you said, it started like a trend. Act two, we find out more about the bands that did the song and the people that kind of like latched onto it and right. made some money, which yeah. is which I do want to talk about George Weiss, who was like a famous arranger mm -hmm. and someone that the labels would have to like help out bands. Is that about right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he kind of came in as a songwriter for the token session and because they they said, well, we've got this this, you know, song that Pete Seeger had done it, a few other people had hits with it, you know, and then they were doing their version of it and they brought him in as a lyricist. And he wrote these lyrics, uh, the, the, which is the, the verse of the song, which is the part that didn't exist before. Uh, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, all that stuff. And so he wrote that stuff and the singer of the tokens goes, well, this doesn't fit the melody at all, which is exactly what you want from a lyricist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> Thanks, George. Well, this doesn't. And so he basically either sat around the piano and figured out the melody for the lyrics that he did write, which is almost sort of a, a Bernie Taupin, Elton John way of going about things. With, right. Here's the words. Now figure out how to stuff them into a song. Yeah. And so they wrote the, the words, and then that became, you know, that big hit for the tokens. And so that changed the song in a very fundamental way where mm. it was no longer. Not only weem away, which isn't a word, right? You know, I was always confused when I was a kid whether it was weem away or weem wep. I couldn't tell if there was a p at the end of it, but it's uh, weem away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that was a change for from mbube, and so now it's almost completely a different piece of music, right? But still relating all the way back to this original 1939 track, you know. So I, George Weiss ends up not only, he ends up claiming for the lyrics as. Uh, uh, owner, he's at some point. They don't really ex ex explain how he gets to this point, but he ends up with all the rights to the song. That's crazy. Yeah, not the tokens don't get anything. The tokens don't get squat even, out of it. Not even like a performance. They might get some sort of performance royalty. Small, small uh, percentage on the right because in in publishing rights, there's it, it's a fifty fifty split between writers and performers, um, which is why I am writer and performer. There you go. And then I get all the money. Yeah. Uh, all the little bits of money. All Performed those, by, written by. Yeah, all those little fractions of a cent from Spotify. Yeah. And um, so I imagine they might get something from the performer side of that, but maybe the label took it from them as well. So I, I a lot of those, especially one-hit wonder bands from the 60s, didn't end up with a lot from their one hit. Right. Um, because their, their contracts were so slanted. Yeah. towards the label that there's you know i mean like you were saying it takes five albums to break even they got one song right you know yeah they're done yeah that, yeah, that, yeah that maybe you know did something so they can still go out and tour on it right and they do they show up at the santa cruz boardwalk every other year in the summer concert series you know yeah they do you know, Star <laughs> rockets in flight. <laughs> yeah just singing their song oh my god god i haven't heard afternoon delight in years <laughs> my parents had that on their jukebox it's about when I was a kid. fucking 
It totally is. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. That How was old, the best. I was this old when I found out that it was about fucking. Like, I just <laughs> just realized that the other day. I'm like, oh, it's afternoon delight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Strangely, my parents explained that stuff your to me when are, I was a kid. Your parents are pretty cool, man. They are. Yeah. We had a, we have, uh, they still have a jukebox, like a legit, like, 1967 Wurlitzer at their house. Oh, wow. Uh, that works. And so we, we would listen to all the old 45s and stuff that they had in there. So they had afternoon delight in there. And my mom, exp- I think my mom explained that one to me. She also explained to me um, uh, Brand New Key by Melanie. Uh-huh. I got a brand, a brand new, new rose key. Yeah. You got yeah. a brand new key. She was like, Yeah, that's about sex. And I was like, What? Uh, <laughs> roller oh. skates and keys? Yeah. I didn't even I didn't even know what a roller skate key was. Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding? Right. And uh and uh yeah, she explained to me like she was like, Oh yeah, it's about sex, key hole. I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, I'm eight. All right. <laughs> you know? All right. Wow, I didn't know. Are all songs about sex? I think so. Yeah. Oh my god, we my girlfriend here. still doesn't believe me that little red Corvette. Is about sex. Little she's red like, no, it's about fat. Yeah, she's like, no, it's about a car. I'm like, nope. <laughs> it's a, it is? Oh, no. Prince wrote a song about sex? I would never have guessed. No. <laughs> Gotta cast this duck. Gotta cast this duck. So who would play Ryan Milan? And uh, uh, you didn't have, you had no time to think about Mark this. Mark Marin comes to mind. Just kind oh, of the look. Oh fuck. Scraggle him up a little bit more. And uh, but he might be a little too manic. No, that's perfect. <laughs> wow, good job. Right off the spot. Like that's pretty I was thinking of David Carradine. Mhm. Like uh Yeah, David Carradine. Uh, yeah. Alive and right. cuz he has that kind of like soft spoken kind of Right look to him but uh-huh. mark Marin would be perfect actually <laughs> um is there anyone else in this like we could think of that what about the um the copyright lawyer i guess that could the, be the pre- high price the gray-haired yeah. guy oh that would be uh um, that could be pretty much anybody i suppose but yeah i'm trying to think of somebody that's super blowhardy he is blowhardy yeah he kind of um there is a guy who plays a lawyer in the sopranos Okay, that, uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. that looks like him. He's got uh-huh. the white hair and yeah. stuff, and is so that maybe that could be that, that guy, guy, whoever that is. Yeah, somebody I IMDb that. But <laughs> I think Mark Marin is Ryan Milan is very good. That's so good job. We played <laughs> cast the stock on, on our on the podcast. So it, so yeah. So um, act two, we're definitely into kind of the people who are just like stealing the money uh-huh. out of out of the hands of the of the Linda family. Yeah. Um, and then you know, there's some people like uh, so. Here's a little bit on my background. Um, when I was a teenager, I was really into politics, mm. and I worked for Howard Wolpe, who is a Michigan uh, legislature. He was a uh, not state but federal. Um, he was in D.C., and he was the guy who pushed uh, the sanctions against South Africa because of apartheid okay. in 84. Uh-huh. And so when I was a teenager, I worked with Howard Wolpe, Democrat, mm-hmm. and I remember that's when I first started getting into South Africa and okay. South African politics, uh-huh. and specifically South African music. Yeah. So I was a big fan of Soweto music. Okay. I still am. Right. So Abdul- Abdullah Ibrahim... Dollar Brand, Johnny Clegg, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lady Smith, Black Manzambo, like those, all mm-hmm. those groups, I was a, a big fan of, and I still nice. am, and and um, I love that kind of music. Uh-huh. Did you ever get into like the South African sound? I did. I mean, I studied a little bit of African music in college, and and did some drumming and things like that. It's really, really difficult stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and it's it's one of those things where I always when I hear it I go oh man I gotta dive more into that because it's really cool stuff and I've never kind of gotten around to it but I enjoy that kind of thing yeah certainly um, the the stuff I was studying was more uh, Western Africa Ghana places like that right um, and uh, and studying that kind of thing but uh, the South African stuff I enjoy I've never really had a chance to really dive into it though yeah it's pretty it's expansive and very impressive like the mm -hmm. the sound I mean there's like the Nigerian like Fela Kuti and that, that stuff is great yeah. and that kind of stuff there's Ali Fakatura mm -hmm. um, a lot of the West African stuff is amazing but <clears throat> my I love gospel okay I grew up playing piano in my my stepfather's all black Southern Baptist church. My nice. stepfather's African American. I grew up playing the piano in an all yeah, black yeah. church in, with this black choir. Got your one fours down. Do I ever? <laughs> do I ever have the one four down, dude? Yeah, and um, and I really got into like um, gospel growing up, listening to gospel. I love like Cannonball Adderley. Yes, who comes with a Southern Baptist kind of mm -hmm. you know rhythm to right. it. And, I, and so when when I first heard the Soweto stuff coming out of Johannesburg in that area, um, it has that gospel sure feel to it. Which okay. Is like, um, even even if you think about it, um, the original song that Solomon Linda would, did with the Evening Birds, it has that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of gospel swing to it. You know. Yeah, and they're saying, I mean, that's kind of where that came from. Is not only that style, but that song. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Was, they're saying that song spawned that genre. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that kind of sound. Yeah. I mean, even Paul Simon famously sure. picked that up. And yep. you remember, I mean, I guess you're old enough to remember when Paul Simon played in South Africa. Yep. People were like, whoa, yeah. like, well, I don't know if you can do that. Right. You know, remember that? It was like a big deal. Yeah, certainly. He went there and recorded and played that live concert. Yep. People were like, we're not, we don't do that. Yeah. You yeah. know, but. Um, you know, it's fucking awesome, I guess, that he did. I love Paul Simon. And, yeah, he's great. And Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints, those albums, you know, are yeah. pretty awesome. So, like, yeah, so Act 2 is basically the groups, and then we're starting to learn more about the song and who started doing it. And that's when we first start get, we in, get introduced to the sisters. Yes. And then, like you said, Ryan Milan, who is, like you said, the most transparent person ever on a documentary, because mm -hmm. he was like... He's like, maybe I'm afraid to go into Johannesburg because I'm white and right. I have fear of black people. Yeah. And like, you're like, what? Well, there's one time he goes, he goes, I, I love black people and I fear them. And I was like, well, you're never going to hear any white person say that out loud. No. You know? And he's in South Africa. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like you said, I think it was his grandpa or his dad, D.F. Milan, who basically was like, yeah, let's just do this apartheid thing. Right. Like, yeah. He had to live through all that. Um, and his family had been in South Africa for 300 years. Right. You know? And another tid, tidbit that I, I almost, like, I didn't even catch it in the first time around, but the second time he said that he wrote for Rolling Stone under a non de plume, like yeah. he wrote under, in his fake name, do you remember his fake name? That he used? Oh, it was, uh, yeah, it was Nelson, Nelson Mandela. Mandela. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Who is this guy, man? That is so odd. It was, I literally did not pick it up the first time. And the second time I, I made a note of it because I was like, what? Yeah. Like, that is so weird. Yeah. That is really strange, but that's awesome in this, you know, the same respect. So we see uh, Ryan Milan driving like years later. Uh, to go talk to these sisters who he, he'd been he'd been really close to the family right and, and again the one thing the doc does that's kind of confusing doesn't really give you a good idea of the time differences mm -hmm. however 
for some reason, and they don't explain this either, there's a lot of footage from him typing in like 1992. Mm. Like you see yeah. actual archival footage of right. him typing and writing for the Rolling Stones. And he looks young and he's handsome. Right. And, um, the, even the, the new lawyer that they get, uh-huh. you see footage of him yeah. from years ago. Because uh, they, they had to get rid of the original lawyer who sounded like a piece of shit. I don't know if he was a piece of yeah, shit. He okay. just didn't really know what he was doing. He wasn't an IP lawyer. Okay. And he, he was like, he was like right from the very beginning. He's like, I don't really know what I'm doing. That's why we had to bring this other guy in. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. He was like, you know, I got a buddy who's a lawyer who said he'd help me out. But, you know, he's in a... He didn't know, know quite he that. He has no idea what he's doing. Right. You know? yeah. Right. Awesome. But it, but they there was but the, but he I guess I'm talking about the original original lawyer because they go to his office and yeah. they're like give us the documents and they, oh oh that guy yeah. okay yeah yeah he he was shady yeah he yeah. seemed because he was like here's a slip of paper right it was like four pieces of paper or something like that yeah, yeah and this was like for like the last fifty years yeah. or something mm-hmm. where the family was like we've only gotten like a couple bucks yeah and the guy's like well here's your receipt right written on a napkin yeah and so the dude you're talking about right he was. He came in and he was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. However, I'm going to try to help the family out. Yeah. And um, they, they try to get the documents from them. And then we learn more about the story and the daughters who are like, um, yeah, we don't No one's ever told us anything. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what's going on. Right. No one's told us anything. We're, we're poor. We grew up, like they say, with dust floors and, yep. you know, barely a fucking roof over their heads. And they're like, help us out. So... We see this conversation going on, and then we learn that that he writes the story for Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. and it gets it drums up some yeah. some uh, attention. Mm-hmm. It gets into all these newspapers and stuff, and so they come up with this like. First of all, Disney wants to just squash it, like they do, sure, because they're just like no. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, we're not going to do that. Well, I, 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 the part that you're almost missing there is how they decided they needed to sue. They wanted to go after Disney because it was high profile. Right. Rather than going after the tokens or George Weiss or somebody that nobody knows. They were like, if we go after Disney, this is going to create some press. Right. And so, but they didn't want to sue Disney in the U.S. because that's impossible for them to do, you know, right. financially. So they said, we have to figure out how to sue them in South Africa. So they put a lien on Disney's IP in South Africa, they basically took Mickey Mouse prisoner. Yeah, and and so Disney had to then go play on their terms. See, on that's their turf. another part I tr- did not really understand was that. So they put a lien on Mickey Mouse and and Donald Duck or something. Yeah, but I didn't quite understand how they could do that. I guess because. They said that Disney had over 250 patents in South Africa. Trademarks. Trademarks, rather. Yeah, yeah trademarks. And so they kind of leaned on them, I guess, and said they... Yeah, well, so they would have had to go to court and say, we think that Disney owes us money for this, and so we're going to put a lien oh, on their intellectual property only for its use in South Africa. Right. So it wouldn't have had any any bearing on U.S., Europe, none of that. Everything would have been fine. But if they want to use this trademark in South Africa, we're going to get a piece of the action. So Disney would have had to respond to that. Right. It was basically just baiting them into responding. Okay, I get it now. Yeah. Okay, I literally re- rewound and watched that segment a couple times, and I was still a little confused. Yeah, it, like, it wasn't well explained. Yeah. It wasn't well explained. And then, so then they bring in this high-powered... Uh, intellectual property copyright dude yeah. who probably gets paid you know four or five six hundred bucks an hour right uh, they bring him in 
he finds the obscure Dickens law. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, I remember he's like, and then I had like a, uh, like an, a, a, a an idea. I was yeah, taking a eureka shower. moment. Yeah, an yeah. eureka moment. I'm like that. How do you have an eureka moment around that? And then so they come up with that with the Dickens law, which is like the lifetime of the creator plus 25 years, right. and they they put that into use. And then one of the another weird things about this documentary is the the second lawyer, the guy we were talking about who didn't really know what he was doing, not the first one, runs into the minister of culture. Yeah, in an airport. Yeah. And was like, "Hey, you're the minister of culture. Like, this is this is what we're doing. Uh-huh. Can you pay for stuff?" Right. And they're like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, it was Im- an important enough song to South okay. Africa that that minister of arts and culture went, "Yeah, I think this is a worthwhile. That song b- should belong to South Africa, and so it's a worthwhile thing for the government to get involved with to pay for this." Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And they do. Yeah. And they get involved and they front some money and they basically, the dude's like, oh, I'm on safari. And me and my wife are on safari and we get a text that says they found in the, the whatever, the Supreme Court of South Africa found in their favor. Mm-hmm. So Disney was like, fuck, okay. Yeah. And then Act 3, which now you think, okay, fucking happy ending. This right. Is, this is awesome. They even say happy ending like a disney movie yeah yeah, yeah. it's like okay things are gonna work out but no <laughs> it doesn't and that's the weird that's uh, i have to say i'm gonna skip a little bit here to the very end but the, the one of the reasons i really did like this doc it was not a typical happy ending right it really leaves you with like no ending right it's really yeah weird yeah, there's no real ending in this documentary, which is a yeah. weird feeling. But it reminds me of the documentaries I loved when I first started getting into docs in the '90s and early 2000s, which, which were just these like low budget films uh-huh. that really didn't end. It just told the story, yep. and you're just like, "Fuck, yeah, okay." So Act Three is basically we're like ten years now after the settlement, and that's the problem is that um, the Disney offered uh, a, a cash settlement, right? Which is basically was like if you take the money, uh, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you have no. Well, recourse. they offered them uh, a cash settlement plus future royalties for what would have been the twenty five years. So the whole deal expired in twenty seventeen, uh-huh. and so now it's done, done. But yeah, so they did offer them a flat cash plus future royalties, right? Okay, in a trust. Right. That's the okay. Yeah. Now we're in the trust and with the non disclosure. Yes. Well, of course. Apparently, a very, I mean, I thought it was weird that they couldn't, because it was over, over, they couldn't still disclose. So maybe those NDAs are forever. Well, I, I would think the NDA was still in effect while they were shooting it. Oh, because at the very end, we do find out yeah. the money. Because we're in 2019 right now. Right. But, and I think it came out a year and a half ago. So they're shooting it. They're right. filming it before that NDA is up. So nobody's going to say anything. Right. Because now, now we know, because there's a like a black card at the end that basically says what the sisters got. Right. Which was around 250000 each. Each. Plus the 20% that the one lawyer got. Plus, So you're talking maybe a million, maybe 1.2. Right. That they got out of Disney, which Disney made yesterday on Frozen Two. It's a drop in the bucket to Disney. You Disney know? Plus. I mean, right? Yeah, their website crashed. Right in 2019, <laughs> you don't hear about websites crashing anymore. Yeah, like 
That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, they did what Disney does. Disney will go, nope, we're going to squash that. Okay, well, we weren't able to squash it. Just pay them because it's such a small amount of money for us, for Disney, that just, just pay them. Just get them out of our hair, you know? That that's I mean that's the way that Disney tends to deal with sure. that kind of stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, because I thought for sure this was going to end with like they got like fifteen mil. Uh-huh. They bought a nice house with a pool. <laughs> you know, everybody. That's what they thought they were going to get. Right. You know, and so they said, okay, this is the crazy. This is infuriating to me. Is that they set up a trust. They didn't really ask the sisters what they wanted. Right. They basically said, no, you're going to not know how to use this money. Mm -hmm. So we're going to set up a trust, and we're also going to bring in people we think are going to help you. Right. Which was like some dude that was like uh, an accountant or something, Uh the lawyer, and some other dude that spoke Zulu Uh so he could interpret and be part of the trust. Right. And, no, Ryan Milan refused. Yeah, he he didn't want to do it. Smartly. Smartly. This guy yeah. is very smart. Yes. This Ryan Milan. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to have some beers and some shots with that guy? Absolutely. And, and yes. just talk music and... Totally, yeah. And so then the sisters are like, we don't... No one's ever showed us anything. Right. No paperwork. We don't know how much money there is. We don't even know if they've given us all the money we're supposed to have. And then the fucking white-ass lawyer dude is like, they're drunks. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just gonna... They're just drinking it away. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you drink away 250 grand? Right. That's impossible right. i've known some serious alcoholics <laughs> we're comedians we know we drinkers know. yes like that seems so fucking shady to me mm-hmm. and then um ryan goes and talks i wish i could remember that um lawyer's name i didn't write it down unfortunately. The, the, the the last guy yeah i think i, I think well the I guy the down. intellectual property guy yeah what was his name uh owen dean oh yeah owen dean owen dean yeah he goes and talks to him and owen dean's just like um, no, we did everything on the up and up and yep. they're, they just, you know, and then he's like, couldn't they just be appreciative? Oh, I know. I was like, uh, uh, did you, really? You You're going to go there? to yeah. go there, dude. Yeah. All the hard work. Yeah. Well, you got fucking paid. Right. And we're talking about fucking a poor ass people right. in a shanty town in fucking Johannesburg right. for Christ's sakes. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, when they, when Disney insisted on the trust. I mean, it's a, a little bit weird of Disney to insist on a trust in yeah. the settlement, but I didn't see it as a bad idea because, I mean, when you think about lottery winners and they go, oh, how many lottery winners end up broke a year and a half 90%. after winning? Yeah, right. So when you take three poor ladies from South Africa who have never had a million dollars, there's a good chance they might blow it too. So I don't see the harm in a trust. It was the transparency that they had a problem. Absolutely. With, you know? I kind of, I, I agree. I think a trust is actually really smart. It's just, they had no control over it. Right. And they had people telling them what was good for them. And even one of them says they're treating us like kids. Right. You know? And it's like, fuck, that's because they already had been treated like kids. And now it's just, they finally got what they wanted. They fought really hard. And now people are just doing it again to them. Yeah. You know? And it really sucks. And then, there is a follow-up. Uh, Ryan Milan gets some paperwork, and he goes through it, and he's like, I don't see any fraud mm-hmm. in this, you know. And that's basically it. Yeah. And it just comes down to he said, she said. Yeah. Literally. There's, like, I'm like, there's got to be bank record. Like, what is going on? It's yeah. modern day. Right. I can't do anything without <laughs> a paper trail. Yeah. You know, like, like I don't understand how there's not an, a, like, equitable paper trail here right. but apparently there's not yeah nobody's happy uh-huh uh and ryan's just 
just smoking his, wearing a fucking do rag and smoking his cigarettes, right? And trying to help out and do the right thing, but yeah, yeah. Crazy. And even he goes, "I failed them," and it's like, God, this guy is just so honest. He's so, you know, he's <laughs> super honest, super yeah. honest. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like, dude, that's your inside voice. What? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you're on camera. Do you know you're on camera? What would you? What is it? What is the theme of this doc to you? I'm. I think the the theme is. I, I any like any sort of artist who's been screwed story in in that you know the artists yeah. get taken advantage of a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I think depending on your background, you're going to find different themes in this one because it could be the you know the white people do bad things theme, which is obviously there. Um, it could be the artist gets screwed theme, which is obviously there. I mean, as an artist, that's what I was drawn towards where I was like, okay, I've seen this story before. Right. You know, I've read the chess record story. I know how this goes down, you know, um, I, it was, you know, one of those two things. And I think it was just, I think the big theme is, you know, this quirky little song that everybody loves so much. Here's the really messed up background of this song. Right. You know, right, which, right. uh, um, uh, I love those kind of stories where you just where it's so much deeper than you ever thought it would be. Yeah, you know, me too, absolutely. Well, Phil, thank you for bringing this to our attention. I'm glad that we were able to do this today because it was it's a, a really great documentary. It's a great story. It's a really great documentary. The song, eh, uh, you know, <laughs> but definitely worth the time and uh, to watch it. And it's still streaming on Netflix. Yep. Um, so I have a little questionnaire for you sure. that we do with our guests. Um, what's your hometown? Uh, I live in Milpitas, California right now. That's where you grew up? I lived, I grew up in San Jose and I literally live six blocks across the border now. Okay. So awesome. I grew up on the, on the edge of San Jose and now I live on the edge of Milpitas. Edgy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Person you are most mistaken for? Oh, um, I've gotten Chris Robinson over the years okay. from the Black Crows. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a good reason I don't play ukulele on stage and that's to avoid any Tiny Tim references. <laughs> Ah. Oh, that is funny. All right. Uh, what is your dark secret? My dark secret? Um, I don't know. I'm so good at not having secrets because I'm very easily guilty. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Pet peeve? Uh, pet peeve is... Um, uh, I, I get really offended at single spaces after a period these days. Oof. Yeah. Ugh. Yikes. <laughs> Ugh. Jeez. What is your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure. Um, I, I mean, you know, being a musician, there's there's uh, probably a lot of music I listen to. The the teenage years stuff that does not hold up well anymore. Like? Uh, Poison, Motley Crue, you know, the 80s hair band yeah. stuff that I grew up on. Yeah. Oof, yeah. Uh, what do you never travel without? Uh, I never travel with most of the time without my laptop. Right on. Um, do you have pets? No. My girlfriend and I both love dogs but disagree with how they should be housed. She says they live outside, and I say they live on the bed, and so we don't have a dog. Kick her out now. <laughs> Why are you still with her? What is your biggest regret besides dating this girl? <laughs> <laughs> For 26 years, yes, Whoa. she's my biggest regret. No, uh, my biggest regret uh, would be a, uh, a financial transaction that I should not have gotten into about 10 years ago. Oof, isn't that the truth? Okay, who is your celebrity crush? Celebrity crush. 
Well, let's see. I hope my girlfriend's not going to listen to this. Um, um, big into uh, the 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 gal that plays Daisy on uh, on um, that Marvel TV show, uh, Age, Agents of Shield. Oh, I can't oh, think of her name. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to put that in the show notes because I don't remember her name either. I can't. Chloe she, something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. She is a cutie. Yes. She is a cutie. <laughs> um, so tell people where they can find you online. PhilJohnsonComedy.com. Uh, just Google Phil Johnson Comedy and I will come up. Do not just Google Phil Johnson. You get the evangelical philosopher. That's not you? That is not me. Okay. And uh, terrible when his people find my website. But uh, yeah, philjohnsoncomedy.com has links to anything and everything. Are you still doing the podcast? Uh, no, I had to give that up because it became very, very time intensive for the amount of money and return I was getting on it, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know it all too well. Yeah. Yes. I was spending, you know, three days out of my week working on a podcast. It was super fun. It was called Under the Crossbones. It was all about pirates in yeah. pop culture and history. Uh, and the show is still up. Uh, we're in the process of changing hosts. The show will go on. Nick Hoffman is taking over the show cool. um, as host. And uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Got to talk to so many really cool uh, people that I would not otherwise have had a, an excuse to talk to. Right. On. And this show will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So do you have anything you want to plug in the, like in three to four weeks from now? Uh, yeah, let's see. In January, I'll be uh, in doing tour dates in Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana. Out that way, uh, in the sort of around the Minneapolis area, probably Chicago, uh, uh, somewhere in Indiana that I can't think of the name of Mishawaka, Indiana. Oh, I know Mishawaka. Yeah, doing Smokestack Brewery there. Oh, I yeah, I know yeah. that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing that. Uh, but yeah, t tons of tour dates. Uh, I got Iowa and Michigan in March, I think it is. So yeah, a bunch of bunch of road stuff, and I'll have a new special out in the spring called Burning Sensation. Awesome. As soon as we get this stupid thing done. Yeah, you're yeah. not talking about this podcast, are you? Are you <laughs> no, no, not this stupid thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, we, stupid yeah thing. no, we were working on filming shows for, for the new special after a debacle that I, happened in August. Yeah, big story. Yeah, yeah. yeah I read about that. <laughs> it's too bad. Yeah, but it's going well. Speaking of music and debacles and comedy, <laughs> thank you again, Phil Johnson, thank you. for coming in and bringing uh, Lion Share to our attention it's been great talking to you. You too, Paco. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at SupDocPodcast.com, recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel, and our show is engineered by Will Scoville. For as little as a dollar a month, you can donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash SupDocPodcast. And if you want to help us out in other ways, please just share the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find out more about Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on our website. SupDoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise with us, you got a film or opinions, just hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at supdocpodcast at gmail.com. 